0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April third, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. New documents obtained by the ACLU indicate that many local police agencies are basically making up the rules of surveillance and directing telecom firms to play into their error. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, comments.
1: We focus a lot on surveillance at the federal level, especially surveillance by intelligence agencies, and with good reason. They have the most impressive capabilities. Uh, No one can hold a candle to NSA when it comes on electronic surveillance. But one thing you can say about them is at the very least, uh, they have dedicated lawyers who are intimately familiar with the incredibly complex uh, tangle of electronic surveillance laws, that are supposed to govern that activity, and they are familiar also with precedents across the country uh, limiting that. It doesn't mean they don't push the envelope when they can, uh, but at least it means that when they strain the limits of the law or the Constitution, it's deliberate, uh, for whatever that's worth. When it comes to local law enforcement, what you see uh, is, I think, much more often uh, investigators proceeding out of simple ignorance of... Uh, in fairness, is fairly Byzantine uh, framework of statutes, and so what we find in a, a trove of documents obtained from state and local law enforcement by the American Civil Liberties Union is an incredible array of different practices by different law enforcement agencies that have to do with obtaining cell phone records, and in particular with using cell phones for location tracking, effectively turning your cell phone into a personalized tracking device. Uh, this is pretty significant because in a recent unanimous Supreme Court decision uh, the Supreme Court held that when a physical tracking device is used as when a bug is installed on someone's vehicle uh, that is covered by the Fourth Amendment and presumably requires a, a search warrant based on probable cause which is a pretty high standard um, but when it comes to the terra incognita of cell phone location tracking uh, what we see is one it's become incredibly prevalent. Uh, all but 10 of more than 200 agencies that responded to this freedom of information request acknowledged using location tracking for some purposes. In a lot of cases, that just means emergency tracking. That is, someone is lost or injured and you need to find them. Uh, and you know that's, I think, pretty unobjectionable. Um, but a lot of agencies also use it for – Investigative purposes for investigating suspected criminals, drug dealers, etc. And in those cases, some law enforcement agencies say they always get a probable cause search warrant, which seems to me the appropriate standard for a potentially extremely invasive method of tracking. Uh, A lot of other agencies though say they have no clear standards at all, that they trust the cell phone company to tell them what standard that they're going to require, which seems like passing the buck in a pretty disturbing way. Uh, You you would think it was up to the law enforcement people to know what the limits on their search powers were, not up to uh, private companies that they're supposed to be searching uh, and serving legal process on. And so you see uh, a number of agencies saying that they can get cell phone records, including pretty detailed location records, you know precise GPS records showing where a person is over potentially very long periods of time, um, just using a subpoena or a lesser kind of court order that just requires showing relevance to an investigation, which is a far, far lower standard. Um, maybe the most, Disturbing thing of all is a a practice of getting what are called tower dumps. That is to say, not trying to track a particular individual but asking a company for a particular cell tower's full log showing everyone whose cell phone was registered as being near that cell tower uh, within a half hour or one hour period. Now, people who follow Electronic privacy issues. Uh, we'll be familiar with one case from 2008 in Texas, where this method was used. It was a, a series of bank robberies carried out by a, a gang known as the Scarecrow Bandits because they wore, you know, floppy hats and uh, and baggy clothing to disguise themselves. And in that case, what happened was. Uh, Uh, Law enforcement requested records from the nearest cell tower to five or six different banks that had been hit by the same gang. The theory being if you had one or two cell phones that happened to be at every one of those locations right before the robbery, um, you had at least a a pretty good indication that this was someone who needed a closer look. In principle, uh, you want to say maybe that's uh, a justifiable – uh, method with very strict safeguards but it 's in pretty strong tension with the Fourth Amendment ideal of particularity that is you don 't go on a fishing expedition searching everyone 's home uh, you know digging up dirt on everyone uh, in the hopes of information coming out that will implicate one of them as a potential suspect. Uh, and so you could imagine a process where some kind of filtering is done at the company or out of the hands of police and all they get is the final result. You know, This is the phone number that was at all of these places. Uh, what's disturbing is this idea of using cell dumps where law enforcement keeps that information and has in principle a record of a lot of different people's locations. Uh, and the important thing to recognize is that while – in isolation, especially in a rural area, data from one tower may just show that all these people were in a certain you know, one-mile radius, which doesn't seem that intrusive. But first, if you get data from a lot of different towers, you can mathematically triangulate the very precise location of a particular phone uh, if you're adding all that data together and that also over time what we've seen is a pretty clear move um, from the cell providers themselves towards smaller and smaller micro or femto towers as they're called. So you could have uh, a hotel conference room or a single city block or a metro station covered by one tower and usually you can tell even which sort of side of a particular tower a person is on. You know, if you look, if you read the sort of uh, technology trade publications, you see that the direction we're clearly moving in is much, much smaller towers, uh, which is partly needed because you need denser coverage to handle the incredible volume of data from all the smartphones and tablets that are constantly in contact uh, with the network. Uh, So that means over time, this kind of data becomes far more precise. And so you can easily imagine, um, you know, police ending up with a virtual map of A whole lot of people's activities uh, detailed in a pretty precise way over arbitrary periods of time. And so what you would think is if this is ever going to be allowed um, at all, you would certainly want – uh, some kind of legislative framework establishing incredibly strict safeguards to ensure that uh, you know basically all of that data is destroyed after you 've extracted whatever it is that 's actually directly relevant to to a crime you 're investigating, um, and you would certainly worry about other potential uses of it uh, you know there uh, have been rumors about a uh, i've heard from lawyers within the industry of um, you know local police asking and uh, Hopefully not getting, but asking for um, dumps showing everyone who was near a certain political protest. So the, the the potential for abuse here is obvious, and what makes this disturbing is that it's obviously not a rarity anymore, anymore. I've spoken to people who say that when this was used in the in the Texas Scarecrow Bandit case, it was a practically unique scenario, uh, what we now find in this document dump is that there are standard price lists. So uh, from T-Mobile, you can get an hour's worth of data from one tower for $150. From Verizon, it's $30 to $60 for every 15-minute increment. Um, and, you know, y- you don't usually have standard price lists for uh, completely unique situations. Uh, the fact that there are prices for this suggests that it's um, it's something that has become – you know, fairly common, fairly routine. Um, uh, the documents that uh, ACLU got show at least uh, uh, six different agencies making use of this practice and who knows how many more there are. Uh, why haven't you heard about this, you might wonder, because it seems so intrusive. Uh, well, one reason may be that, that another thing that came out of this document dump is police instructional material saying do not discuss these capabilities when you talk to press. Do not mention them in police reports to the extent possible. And you assume that the reason for this is you don't want to remind criminals that every time they're carrying a cell phone that's powered on, uh, they're also carrying a potential tracking device. Uh, The problem is that in a side effect of this and maybe a partial motivation is that it also means the general public is largely unaware of – the prevalence, one might even say, the ubiquity of these tracking practices, and so we haven't really had an opportunity to debate how appropriate this is. Not, you know, we're not talking here about the context of extreme, uh, you know, terrorist prevention by intelligence agencies, but uh, ordinary law enforcement purposes carried out by local cops. Um, seems like something. The public would want to know is happening all the time, and we haven't had that opportunity yet. Uh, so one hopes that with this document release, uh, we would have a chance to stop, say, is this something we, we are comfortable being used as frequently as as it is? And either way, what kind of safeguards ought to be in place to ensure that there's a standard – uh, process or procedure and, uh, and that it's not subject to the kind of abuse it was so obviously susceptible to.
0: Now, you made mention of uh, the Supreme Court ruling recently, 9 to nothing. Uh, Justice Sotomayor in that particular case uh, said that the government relies too much on this third-party doctrine, the idea that if we give our data, uh, our effects in some sense to a third party, we have lost our privacy interest in that. And that has justified uh, looking through our bank records looking through our telephone records and and things like that uh, you know what chance do we have of of, of you know dialing back some of that uh, state power uh, through, perhaps a future rejection of the third-party doctrine.
1: I mean so right. In in a world where so much of the most sensitive information about us, uh, our emails, our private correspondence, um, even our own personal documents through services like Google Docs aren't stored in our home under our own direct control but on a server somewhere by a third-party corporation. If we don't re-examine third-party doctrine, the idea that once uh, data is out of your immediate control, you surrender your Fourth Amendment interest in it, uh, I think we'll see a a really radical – we're already seeing really a radical diminution of the uh, practical privacy that the Fourth Amendment protects. It will become in effect a kind of quaint thing that protects your physical home uh, but not the most important information that traditionally would have been protected, things like your private correspondence and papers. so it's important, I think, to, to get that reevaluated. Uh, courts have come down in different places when it comes to cell phone data in particular. You've got at least one court saying, look, people don't really transmit voluntarily their location data to the cell phone company. It's a side effect of using the cell phone. But they're not voluntarily disclosing that in the same way that um, you know, dialing a phone number is voluntarily telling the phone company something, uh, and so that – doesn't quite apply in the same way but really in in general I think it's clear that we need a reexamination of this and and some of the recent uh, commentary from the court from at least certain justices shows that they are very much aware of this uh, perhaps because scholars have for so many uh, years and indeed decades been warning that this third party doctrine has in an electronic age the potential to utterly vitiate the fourth amendment. Uh, so time is the time is is really overdue for a reexamination
0: for uh, cell companies uh, that are providing this data, of course, uh, we're reading in, in other news stories recently about how police uh, are using fairly simple requests to get companies to bypass screen locks on our cell phones to get access to that data as well. Uh, to what extent are these companies uh, well, what are their incentives really? because, we know at the federal the federal level uh they've been given retroactive immunity in cases for dumping huge amounts of data uh, uh, to the to the NSA what are the, what are their incentives
1: yeah i mean it is it is a real problem that especially when surveillance is carried out in secret often non-disclosure uh orders are attached to some of these data requests um it's in the interest of of the company to uh, be as as compliant as possible um you don't see Really, a whole lot of pushback. It seems like uh, you know. Again, I think companies differ. Uh, there's one cell provider called Cricket um, that has been pretty adamant about re- basically refusing to store very much data, which makes it impossible for them to uh, turn it over to authorities. Um, but you know, these are uh, companies that are in many ways entangled with the government at, at such a deep level that. Um, it's, it's maybe not realistic to expect them to resist. Uh, they have the, – the best one can say is that they're in a better position to push back against local law enforcement than the federal government. Um, but I think the reality and, and folks who work in compliance departments within uh, the, the telecom industry have talked about this is that the volume of requests has become so overwhelming that – Effectively, uh, it's impossible for them to push back on all of them. The the real problem for them is how to comply quickly enough to prevent the torrent of law
0: enforcement requests
1: from becoming overwhelming.
0: Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.